In the years that followed the early church fathers, the church grew in darkness. It was as if a giant, dark thundercloud had descended upon Christianity. This was the Middle Ages, as some have coined it, the Dark Ages. Humanity in this time was thrust into moral chaos as the church became the driving force to use religion to control the lives of people. Civilizations were utterly transformed during this period of darkness and evil. But in the early 12th century, a glimpse of light began to shine and peer through these dark clouds. Like the sun shining through a cloudy day, the light began to dawn again. And there lived in Lyons, a city in the Rhone Valley in France, a wealthy merchant named Peter. Peter was employed by the church to translate the four Gospels from Latin to French. And it was during this work that by the grace of God, as he meticulously translated the Latin into French, that he came to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he studied the Scriptures, Peter came to the conviction that Scripture alone was to be the sole basis of authority and not the church. And so, in 1177, he organized a society of men and women who would take the gospel to their countrymen. They were known by history as the Waldens, after the founder, Peter Walden. They were known as the poor men of Lyons, because they took to heart Jesus' exhortation to the 72 not to take anything with them, as they went and evangelized. These Christians in the 12th century, though, would face fierce persecution from the Roman Catholic Church. Hundreds being killed because they dared take the gospel to the everyday man, to the farmer, to the merchant, to the poor and the least. At one particular time, this society suffered a tremendous blow as 400 women or children were murdered by the Pope while the men were out evangelizing and taking the gospel to their countrymen. All of this because of their commitment to make sure that the people who sat in the pews had access to this book. And at this time, it was forbidden for, for the Bible to be read in any language other than Latin. And you might say, well, that's not a big deal. Yeah, nobody knew Latin. And so every Sunday they would gather and hear words read that they didn't even know what it meant. But these Waldinians wanted to take the gospel to the everyday person. One author wrote of them, of them the world is not worthy. They love not their lives unto death. By faith they overcame the world. And we do well to remember the testimony to truth and steadfastness under grievous tribulation which characterized their lives. Friend, it was in the midst of darkness 
that God graciously saved Peter Waldo and began to shine a light among the people of God. And that light, friend, would spread like a wildfire throughout France and Europe and around the world as the people of God were committed to the Word of God. And the question is that often drives at these moments in history, is, is time really on our side? It truly is a reminder to all of us that every one of us have the exact same amount of time in the day. Every one of us here. No matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, influential or influenced, we all have 24 hours. 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds in a day. The question for us as we consider time to be a great equalizer among men is that it is a diminishing commodity. Gold is priced at an exorbitant rate because it is a depleted resource. There's not a lot of it. Well, friend, time is diminishing, and specifically your time, your individual time. None of us are guaranteed today. None of us were even guaranteed to wake up. Imagine, we laid our heads down on our pillows with such faith and expectation that we would get up in the morning. Behold, we did. We live as if death is a distant relative. We, we treat life and time as if we have an endless supply of it. But Jesus, in His grace and mercy to us as His people, remind us that life is fleeting, that time is diminishing. And there waits for everyone in this room an eternity which is fixed and final. There is no do-over. There is no second chance. There is no, well, but. There is either eternal life or eternal death. Which do you choose? Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem, where He will die the death His people deserve. He will face God's judgment. He was sent for this very purpose, to die the atoning death for the people of God. And along His journey to the city, He has been helping His disciples understand how life will be without Him. It will be difficult. It will be arduous. It will be hard. He has painted for us, and Luke has recorded for us, a vivid picture of what life looks like between Jesus' first and second coming. And here in our text this morning, Luke adds this little phrase, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will deter him. 
And Luke is reminding us that as we weave and wind through this journey that Jesus is on, that the destination is fixed. That we ought not to get our eyes off of the cross that looms large before us. And Luke writes this as a, as a transitional sentence to signal to us as his readers that Jesus is again shifting to another topic of discipleship. He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to you to remind you of the urgency to believe and the urgency to tell others about Jesus. There is tension in the text of urgency, of anxiety, of, mm, this is, this is going to hurt. And I hope to show you that this morning. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. You'll find it on page 873 in the Pew Bibles. Let me just encourage you to open a Bible. Don't take my word for it. Look at what God has said for yourself. Beginning there in verse 22. Look for the little, tiny little 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not come to see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, friend, as we consider this text this morning, I've organized it around this main idea. 
that the free offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is a limited time offer. This is a limited time offer. It is limited to the here and now. The free offer of salvation is a diminishing offer here today, gone tomorrow. Therefore, one must urgently respond before time runs out. The clock has been set. And it is ticking down until you, my friend, have no more time to respond. The purpose of our time this morning is to see the narrowness of belief. To get a sense of the answer to to the question that is asked here, why are so few saved? If Jesus is such a great Savior and His death so effective to pardon men's sin, why do people not believe in Jesus? It seems so simple and straightforward. Trust and believe and you'll be saved. Why do so many not take up this particular offer? Friend, I hope this morning we have a sense of of pressure put upon our own souls to genuinely reflect, do I believe upon Jesus and His finished work? Friend, I hope you leave here with clarity in your mind that if you choose to go your own way, friend, that was your choice. When the offer of salvation was freely extended to you, you rejected it, and you will stand in judgment for it. Not because of this church, not because of your family, not because of the circumstances of your life, but because you willingly rejected Jesus. And friend, if that's the choice you make, then you will have an eternity to reflect upon it. An eternity separated from God. My friend, Luke outlines here really two main points, two reasons why only a few believe. Number one, because of the narrowness of the door, the narrowness of the door. Narrow doors are hard to get through for big guys. Prideful, big-headed people have a hard time getting through this narrow door. But we see secondly, because of narrow people. There's a narrow door and there's narrow people. Uh, People who are narrow in their thinking, unwilling to consider rightly who Jesus is and believe upon Him. So first we see here Jesus uses the illustration of a narrow door. The main idea that Jesus is driving at here is the the diminishing opportunity to follow Him. The diminishing opportunity to follow Him. What we see in our text, first, a timely question. A timely question. Look with me there again. Someone said to Him, we don't know who the someone is, maybe a disciple, maybe someone who was following around with them, tagging along. There was a a few hundred that, that followed them. Lord, will those who are saved be few? This is a timely question, after all, if you've been journeying with Jesus. Along this journey, there have been many rejecting Jesus. Now, now, of course, there were were some who were believing and following Christ, but 
But as they observe the general landscape of Jesus' ministry, it does beg the question, why are so many rejecting you? If it is clear and evident that you are from God, why are so few believing upon you? Why does it seem that, that you're not as popular as one would have hoped? You're not as acceptable. Like Noah and the ark, why were there only a few saved? It is a timely question that drives at an observation which is often narrow in its own viewpoint. In fact, if you continue to read part two of Luke's Gospel, uh, what we call the Acts of the Apostles, we see that there are thousands who come to know Jesus in a saving way. In fact, all of humanity, if one is a reasonable historian, would say that Christianity has completely and utterly transformed human civilization for the past 2,000 years. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Because the question gets at what we thought about last week. When the Tower of Siloam fell on those people. Or when the Gentiles were, their blood was mingled with the sacrifice. You see, remember that the defense mechanism is always to say, why? So that we can somehow hedge our bets that it won't affect us. Why are so few saved? Why isn't the church growing? Why are our numbers declining or plateauing? You might ask yourself that question of this church. This is the question that's being asked right here. Why is it that in Avon Park there's less people coming to know Jesus? Why is in our state Christianity shrinking, not growing? Why? It's a good question, I think. So long as you answer it with Jesus' answer. See, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Look, at, look, look with me here. Look, look here. Does he answer the question in verse 24? He doesn't answer the question at all. He says, friend, don't worry about your neighbor. Worry about yourself. He has, a, he has an imperative. He, he follows up a question with an imperative. He doesn't answer the question. If you were going to answer the question, he, he should have answered it with a declarative statement, not an imperative. Why are so few saved? Strive to enter yourself, my friend. In other words, stop worrying about the souls of those around you. First and foremost, you better worry about yourself. Are you going to be there? Are you saved? It is an interesting question, isn't it? Because Jesus follows up uh, this timely question with a tough answer. Look at, look at the verbs that he uses there. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see the three there? Strive, seek, and unable. 
He does paint a, 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 a troubling or tough answer here, doesn't he? Strive, fight for, strain with every nerve in your body to get through the door. There's a sort of sense of singular devotion to the kingdom of God that all of our spiritual, emotional, and physical energy should be spent on the kingdom. Striving, wiggling, trying with everything you can to get through. You see the impossibility, the difficulty. Well, what's Jesus' point? We fight for what we love. We fight for what we love. We defend our family because we, we love them. We stand up against those who would seek to hurt our family or cause them harm because we love them. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying, if you really love the kingdom of God, you will work your butt off to get in there. There will be a singular devotion that your mind is captivated with, that your eternal dwelling is in the kingdom. And so you strive to enter the kingdom because it is the only place where you find yourself happy and satisfied. Why are there so few saved? I, I, I don't know. Uh, but what you need to focus on is your responsibility to believe. Some begin to drift here, don't they? Theologically, they begin to, well, God is sovereign over salvation and all those who will be saved are going to be saved. And I would affirm that. But sometimes we camp on one side of this and neglect the human responsibility. The man is getting at divine sovereignty. Why are only a few saved? When Jesus responds, that's not your lane, my friend. Your lane that you need to focus on is your responsibility to believe. Are you believing? Let God be God and man be man. You're asking a God question, and what you need to think about is man's responsibility to, to strive to enter. Now again, I do not believe Jesus here is teaching works righteousness. So we reject that we're saved by work. That's not what Jesus is arguing here. His argument is that the ability to believe is diminishing. That's why he goes on to say, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They'll try to wiggle their way into the kingdom, but notice he says they will not be able. The verbal idea here is to have the, the prerequisites in and of yourself to be able to do something. Our fallen condition has resulted in the impassibility, the inability to believe upon Christ apart from divine intervention. More than that, the offer of salvation, Jesus says, is a one-time offer. He is making clear that if you were to turn up into eternity today, Jesus is not going to offer you salvation. That offer has come and gone. And now is judgment. Now is the day we have to answer. It is a reminder to each of us that we must respond. And so Jesus follows this tough answer with a troubling picture, doesn't He? He tells us a parable in verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... And he began to stand outside and began to knock and say, Lord, open to us. 
In other words, Jesus is painting a picture uh, here that the house is closed. The door is shut. The narrow door is closed. It's cut off. You can't access it anymore. And Jesus says, you'll stand outside banging on the door, pleading. Notice the language that Jesus, Lord, an acknowledgement of who Jesus is, that He is Lord, appealing to His gracious nature as King, I will not open. Notice how He responds, I do not know where you come from. I don't even, I don't know who you are, friend. I don't know you. Oh, but, but Jesus, you do know us. You, you remember, you, you, you taught, we ate and drank with you. We were there at the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, we were there when you took that miraculous fish and changed it. You, you, you multiplied it. We ate it. We consumed it. We sat and listened to that wonderful sermon that you did on the mountainside that day. And we heard about what it looks like to be a true disciple. We know your teaching. Well, we came to Vacation Bible School and, and we, we walked an aisle and got baptized. Oh, the church told us we were Christian. I mean, we used to come to Sunday school every week and we heard all the stories and we know all about Noah. We know all about Jonah. And we know about King David and how he killed Goliath. We know all of that. I... I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Jesus describes them as workers of evil. Men and women who had never truly repented and trusted in Christ. They lived in unrepentant sin. Jesus is demonstrating their position. They had never truly trusted in the aspect of the verb there to know is a perfect aspect. It wasn't as if Jesus knew them and then he lost sight of them. No, Jesus is a good shepherd. He never loses one of his sheep. All that the Father gives to me come to me and I shall cast none of them out. Whosoever believes in me, whosoever comes to me. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And Jesus reveals here, there will be those on that day of judgment who had proximity to the things of God, but never had genuine saving faith. This is a troubling place, isn't it? It is a troubling picture that Jesus paints for them. They were strangers to the Master. Friend, perhaps you think that just coming to church somehow saves you. Perhaps it's because you think, because your parents are Christians, that somehow you will be saved from the wrath of God to come. Perhaps it's because you, you give a lot of money to the church, or because you do a lot of work for the church, that somehow that merits God's favor and love and support. Friend, none of these things. Knowing a few things about Jesus and His church are insufficient to save, Jesus says. Only those who have saving knowledge of Jesus, and more importantly, knowledge that Jesus saves through His atoning work. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you a stranger to Jesus? Jesus follows this troubling picture 
with a terrifying future. A terrifying future. Look with me there. Verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two things. Number one, notice it it, it is a literal place. Hell is a literal place of eternal torment. We reject the false idea that God will annihilate those who reject Jesus. In other words, they will cease to exist. They'll be, they'll be blinked out. They'll be gone forever. We reject that. For that diminishes the justice of God. God would be unjust to not punish sinners. Hell is a literal place. And it's a place of torment and suffering. Now, look at it. Look at, at Jesus' words. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. First of all, first, weeping. Notice the, the, the parallel to the picture we have of the new heaven and new earth where there is no weeping, no tearful eye, no brokenness. Jesus is painting hell as a place of, of tremendous sorrow and regret. So much that he describes there that you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. In other words, your ethnicity will not save you. Weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the grinding of the teeth. It, it is, the, the pain is so great that, that you're grinding your teeth down to nothing. Jesus describes hell elsewhere as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's a picture of rotting, decaying flesh that perpetuates eternally. It is a, it's a terrifying picture, friend. Perhaps what makes it so terrifying is that these individuals knew the way of salvation but they did not appropriate it to themselves. Hell is going to be terrible for sinners, but I'm convinced that it's going to be really terrible for so-called Christians. Because you knew the truth, you heard the sermons, you sat in the Sunday school classes, your parents pleaded for your salvation in prayer before the Lord, and you willingly decided to reject Him by continuing to live life your own way. And you will sit there for eternity without the hope of a second chance, all because you love the fleeting sin of your life. You love the juicy gossip and the backbiting and the bitterness and the lust of the flesh, all because you want to indulge in the world now, you will face an eternal damnation because you wanted some sweet treats here and now. What a fool you are. What a fool any of us would be. Jesus also goes on in verse 29 to, to kind of dig the knife in, if you will to dig into the backs of those who are rejecting Him. Not only will they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and the prophets, but they'll see the, the Gentiles. Ugh, 
They'll see those barbarians and Scythians and slaves and those commoners and those poor people, those people on welfare, those people getting free handed. They'll see all the, de- the despised of society and lo and behold, they'll come from east and west and north and south and they will notice, what does he say? Recline at the table. Jesus doesn't just save. He invites us to sit at his table. And you won't be invited, friend. You won't be there. All because you love sin rather than Jesus. Friend, the narrowness of the door is a hindrance to many people because they want to get into the house another way. Perhaps they want to go through the window. They want to go through the chimney. They want to come up from underneath. Jesus is making clear. He's making exclusive claims. Jesus is saying this. I'm not saying this. The church isn't saying this. Jesus himself believed this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the gatekeeper, he says. You cannot get in any other way but through this narrow door. And and friend, that perhaps is why you can't get in. Because you're unwilling to accept the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Perhaps in your mind you find this whole bloody mess a terrible idea. that, That some man, an innocent man, would die for guilty people. Perhaps it's because you think you're good enough. Your good works, your good looks, your good thinking, your good money. Friend, we think entirely, inherently, way too much of ourselves. And because we think so highly of ourselves, we must naturally think God is acceptable of us. Because we're good after all. I mean, we've never murdered anybody, we've we've never stolen, we've, we've been good people, good citizens. Friend, these individuals thought that they could just get close enough to Jesus to learn a few helpful life tips and they could be in. But as they found out, and as you will find out, there is only one way through, through the bloody cross of Christ, through His atoning. And so friend, this morning, you can be saved. The free offer of salvation is is yours to have. Repent and believe in Christ. Friend, if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, just ask any of those around you or whoever you came with today. And today will be the day of your salvation. And you can know without a a shadow of a doubt that if today was the day you turned up, that your acceptance would not be your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What we see secondly here, a narrow people. We see Jesus in all of His glory, I think. This perhaps is a passage you might want to scrub over. Jesus seems to be quite weak, quite sad, quite frustrated. Notice here that first, Jesus is on an unstoppable mission. An unstoppable mission. I hope that you take away from these verses as we conclude a sense of worship, a sense of praise, Jesus is told by a Pharisee, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. 
Perhaps he had good intentions or bad intentions, but he did know that Jesus was going to die if he continued on his journey to Jerusalem. And you get a sense of the irony, don't you? Pharisee, that's exactly why I came to die. I'm not afraid of what Herod will do to me. I'm not afraid of what any man will do to me. I've came to die the death my father sent me on. He will not be deterred by a wicked king, Herod. It is quite ironic too, if you consider the literary irony here, is that Herod tried to kill Jesus 31 years earlier and failed. But he will, in some respects, though not directly, but indirectly succeed. But what was to be a measure of defeat was actually his victory. Go tell that fox, he said. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. It is an allusion to the resurrection that Jesus will complete his work, that nothing will derail God's purpose in salvation. Friend, that ought to be an encouragement to your soul, that, that no one will be lost That no one will will spend an eternity in hell because somehow Satan derailed the plan. Do you believe, Romans 8, that no one can pluck you out of the hand of God? That those that are to be in the hand are, are in the hand for a reason? And that Jesus will lose none of all that the Father gives to me? And I will cast out none who come to me. Whosoever believes in me will have eternal life. And this is why Jesus laments over the wickedness of Jerusalem. Look at the picture of lament that he had. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's weeping over the brokenness of the city. The city of Jerusalem was to be the epicenter of worship of the one true and living God. And it had become the center of wickedness and depravity. Like the church in the dark ages, the the church became the epicenter of immorality and sin rather than the light of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The city that was to be the center of worship had become the center, the epicenter of religious persecution especially of those sent by God to preach and teach the Word. It is a reminder that church can often be the place of death rather than life. Let that never be said of this church, that this be the place of death rather than life. And Jesus paints a picture of His love for the lostness of humanity. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her broad under her wings and you were not willing. Let it never be said that the death of Christ was not effective to save sinners. But let it be said that sinners rejected of their own free will and their own free volition to go life their own way rather than God's way. It's their fault, not God's. Let us never lay the claim that Jesus' grace was insufficient to save. Let us never, ever in our minds think that the the efficacy of the cross was insufficient to save the worst of sinners. Jesus says, I would have saved you if you would have been willing. 
But the problem was you weren't willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not referring here to his arrival in Jerusalem where they sing Hosanna. It's a reference to Psalm 118 when God comes in judgment. And that people are singing praises because salvation has come, but also judgment. Friend, I wonder this morning, if you're a Christian, do you lament over unbelief? Now, I know so many of you have shared with me stories about loved ones that you've pleaded with over the gospel. And I commend that desire and that lamentation that just rises up in you and the brokenness. Uh, Friend, are you broken for the lostness of your family and friends and your community? Friend, if we want to see revival in our community, I believe it has to begin with our own lament over the brokenness. We, We cannot think this place is good. We must think this place is broken and only Jesus can save it. We ought to cultivate in ourselves, like Jesus, a godly sorrow for the brokenness around us. We ought never to celebrate the sin that we experience and that we see in our society, but lament that they are simply fueling the fire of judgment. For in the free offer of salvation is a diminishing opportunity. Therefore, we ought to be quick to share it. We ought to be quick to commend it to others. And we ought to be quick to apply it to our own lives. I leave you with this from Tom Schreiner, pastor and professor at Southern Seminary. He writes, We also see the great love of God for those who reject the gospel. Jesus is not cold-hearted towards Jerusalem, but is grieved over its failure to embrace the good news. He longs to shower His love upon them, but they are unwilling. Yes, God is sovereign over and in all things. But at the same time, those who reject the gospel should receive it and believe it. Their failure to believe is their responsibility and their decision. Our choices in life matter and are authentic and not a charade. Friend, I plead that you would trust upon Christ before time is out. Let's pray.